Okay, here we go. So we are in the Shir Shalyim, um, in the uh, individual psalm or section of Tehillim that we say for every day of the week. Um, on page 77, we're actually holding by the Shir Shalyom of Tuesday, which is the last paragraph on page 77 for all of those who have the same type of sitter. Um, we uh, recall, recall that every day in the Beis HaMikdash, they would bring the carbon in the morning, called the carbon Tamid Shel Shachar, the morning carbon. And that morning carbon was accompanied by song that was sung by the Levim, which is very apropos for the parshas that we're reading these weeks of Bamid Barnasa, Baloscha. That's all about the consecration of the Levim, who served in the Mishkan and then later in the Beis HaMikdash. So when the Levim would sing, specifically in the Beis HaMikdash, they would be saying different sections of Tehillim. And we say every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a section of Tehillim that's in some way connected to that date and is therefore the Tehillim that the Levim would sing in the Beis HaMikdash to accompany the Karban, which of course davening is so connected to the Karbanis. So, um, we discussed a couple of weeks ago, um, we talked about Sunday's Shir Shalyom and Monday's Shir Shalyom and their connection, their relevance to those days. So I want to move on today. I want to talk about, hopefully, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, time allowing, mere session. At least one idea connecting the shear of that day with, um, with that day. So, Tuesday, which is tomorrow morning, uh, bottom of page 77. Hayom Shlishi Shabbos is the third day to Shabbos. We talked about that every day we mentioned Shabbos, that we're counting towards Shabbos. This is the song that the Levim would sing in the Beis HaMikdash. And we go on to sing Psalm um, 82, Pei Beis. And that's really this paragraph is, if you look into your Tehillim, in its paragraph or chapter 82 of Tehillim. And I'm not going to read and translate the entire chapter, but I think that the dominant concept talked about in this chapter is judgment. Mishpat. If you look at the very first verse, Elohim Nitzav Badas Kel, um, Hashem stands, so to speak, in an in Adas, is a, uh, an Adas, like a community of, of a godly place, Bekerev Elohim Yishpot, a place where Hashem judges. And the, the Tehillim goes on to talk about judgment, which is false judgment, which is wicked judgment. Um, but really, we're looking for positive judgment and Hashem's judgment. That's really what the, the overriding theme of this paragraph, of this chapter in Tehillim is. It's all about judgment. Um, what does judgment have to do with Tuesday? Why is the Tehillim of Tuesday or the Shir Shalyam of Tuesday, why is that specifically connected with a shayfet, with judgment? And that's connected with the level of Tiferes, which we're going to get to as well, right? Uh, so we're going to talk about that. So judgment, we know, is really the world stands on judgment, right? Um, a, a, a world without laws and without judges is a lawless world, and it's not a world which, it's not a civilized world. Um, even B'nai Noach, even uh, non-Jews who have seven Noachide laws, one of them is din, dinim, to have judgment, to have judges and to have judgment and to have a court system, because a court system is the basic foundation of being able to live a regular society. So judgment is really the, the foundation, the foundation of how we live. Um, interestingly, on Tuesday, what did Hashem create on Tuesday? What happens on Tuesday, the first thing in creation, is that Hashem makes that the... Um, Whereas on, on Sunday and Monday, the waters cover the earth. And on Tuesday, Hashem separates the waters and leaves dry land and earth. Really, in essence, making the world um, habitable. Which is why there's vegetation. The Which is why there's vegetation. Now that there's earth, so that there can be trees and grass. Those are the two events that happen on the third day. The first thing is, Yikavu Hamaim, he gathers the waters into places so that there's oceans and seas and dry land. And then it, he goes on to create vegetation and growing and, and, and the trees and plants and grass and so on and so forth. So really on the third day is when the earth became from just a creation to a place that can really sustain people, human beings. It became habitable. So on a very simple level, 
That's when you need law. And just as Hashem made the world habitable, judgment and judges and laws makes the world habitable. Because even if you have dry land, if people are running around and there's no law and order, this becomes inhabitable. It may as well just be water. So the, and, and the simplest of levels, the third day is when the world became habitable, and therefore the third day we talk about judgment, which is, um, as the Pasuk says, Melech b'mishpat yamid aretz, that with mishpat, the earth can be maintained, the world can be maintained, when there is mishpat, when there is, um, when there is law and order. In fact, in Pirkei Avos, we read a very beautiful Mishnah, a powerful Mishnah, which says, Hispalel b'shloma shel malchus. A person should always daven for the, for the government. Now, even though not all governments are great, but nevertheless, it's better than not having government. Now, we might want to daven that the government should be better, <laughs> but we should always recognize that government and having that there is someone governing and there is law and there is order is always better than anarchy, than lawlessness. And that's what it says. Well, I'm sorry? And any government. Any government is better than when there is no government. That's why sometimes you have situations, even in, in common history, recent history, where a government was overthrown. It was a negative government. It was overthrown. But what came afterward was even worse. Because it was just lawlessness. And then that's not better than a bad government. A bad government, there's some semblance of law and order. And that, the Mishnah says, Hispalel b'shleim shel malchus, shel mole meira ishes re'eyu chayim beloi. The Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, that if not for some sense of fear, people would swallow each other. Now, I'm not sure if that's meant to be literally, but definitely, maybe even literally, but definitely figuratively. To swallow each other, really the idea of swallowing each other means when one looks at everyone else as just for me. So whatever I need, they're there for me. That's what the swallow means, that they lose their entity. I look at them as just part of, of me. And that's why there has to be some level of mishpat, and that level of mishpat makes it a bit of a hula. So that's on, on a simple level why Yom Shlishi, the third day when Hashem created dry land and made it a, a habitable world, is when we talk about the importance of judgment and proper judgment and just judgment, because that also makes the world habitable. That's on a simple level. On a deeper level, it's a lot more than that. The number three is a very, very uh, important number in Yiddishkeit. Very important number. Um, the Gemara talks about the giving of Torah, and it says that the Torah was given, it said, to a, to a, uh, a triple nation, because we're a nation made of Kohanim, Levim, and Yisraelim. And it was given a triple Torah, because Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim, by a triple person, who is Moshe Rabbeinu, who's a lot of threes going on in Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Um, first of all, he's one of three. You have Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And he's the third of the three. He's the third one born. He's also from Shevet Levi, which is the third of the Shvatim. Uh, Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kehos, and Mirari. Right? It's all, and it goes on. You can play the, the three game. Torah was given after three days of preparation. Right? So it's full of threes. So three is very, very central. Why is three so important in Torah? And the reason is because three represents fusion. One is one. There's nothing, there's no argument, there's no divisiveness, there's one. Two represents divisiveness. There's one, there's two. So one and two don't get along together. Three is the ability to look at one and two and find some way to bring them together. Three is the power of fusion. Um, Kabbalistically, one is chesed, kindness. Two is givura, severity. Kindness and severity don't see eye to eye. Three is teferah, beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is the ability to bring together opposites. Just like a beautiful portrait, a beautiful painting. Um, when is something beautiful? When it blends color. When it blends things. And in real life, when is there a beautiful community? when different types of people are able to live together harmoniously? When is there a beautiful marriage? When the two partners are different and complement each other and blend. And this goes for everything in life. When there, beauty is the ability to synthesize, to bring together, to fuse. And that's the power of the number three in Kabbalah. The number three is always about bringing together A and B. And really that's our mission in this world. Um, this world is, there's godliness and there's the physical. Our job is to fuse them. 
in our life. There's the spiritual parts of our life and the mundane parts of our life. Our job is to fuse them. We are made up of a soul and a body, physical and spiritual. Our job is to bring it together, and that's through the Torah. Ter- I was also thinking that the Rebbe would always say when you, when you went for um, medical advice, that you, that you always go for two opinions, and if they're opposite, then you go for the For a third, for bring, a third. To bring the- Even halachically, we talk about judgment. A Jewish court has to be three, or at least three. Always has to be three. There has to be the ability of one opinion and another and someone who's able to bring them together. And that's... I'm sorry, you, you want to say something No, else? I was thinking like the thing of the Yachriya B'nei Yavo HaKosuv HaShlishi. Excellent, right? Yeah. Right. We say that in the beginning of Davening. Shnei Suvim HaMakhishim Zeh Two verses that contradict one the other. Yavo HaKosuv HaShlishi V'yachriya B'nei The third verse comes and resolves the apparent contradiction, right? And that's something the Rebbe will talk about a lot. And I remember hearing it about that, about the Shnei Suvim and Yavai Yakasav Ashlishi, very much so, yeah. very much so. And that's really the beauty of life. You know, it's being alone, no one argues with you, but it's not beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about being alone. There's no arguments, there's peace, but there's nothing beautiful about it, there's nothing special about it. it didn't accomplish much. <laughs> no one argued because there isn't anyone else to be there, right? Two, is difficulty. But to be able to bring those two together, which is, again, marriage is the ultimate union of two, but it's really any relationship of two, even friends. Any relationship, the, the beauty is recognizing the differences and, and fusing them. And that's ultimately the job of a judge. Judgment is not about two people are arguing, okay, you're right and you're wrong. That's, that's not, doesn't take a lot of chachma. You're right and you're wrong. The Chachma is to be able to find, in most arguments, there's some truth to both sides. Sometimes a little more on one side, a little less on one side. But every person has, has a point, typically. And, and true judgment and, and, and holy judgment is to be able to help each other recognize. And ultimately, there's got to be a certain, um, you know, a certain psaq, a certain uh, rule. But to be able to help people appreciate the other person. That's why the Gemara says that the greatest judges almost never ruled. They always brought about compromise. Because the greatest judgment is to bring the two to compromise and recognize where the, where the amos is by both. Such a weird thing. Like, I, I see that a lot, you know, in those kinds of situations when you go to a basin and there seems to be, like, a compromise. But it just seems to me that, that it, it's, it's not the amos, really. D- depending on the situation. Depending on the situation, you know, sometimes it's clear that the halacha said this and not that, um, and that's the halacha. No, but but it's, it seems like they're always trying to get people to like compromise when really one person is right. It's very you know, obviously it's very hard to talk in, in general, and there are times when the halacha says this is right and that's wrong. But what we are trying to do is trying that both people should walk out with some sense of fulfillment, some sense of happiness, not that. You know, it's all, you know, it, you know, we talk about judgment in the court is one thing. You talk about your family, you talk about children, you talk about rivalry. You want ultimately not to be able to say you're wrong and you're right. Even though like Midas Hadin might say, yeah, they're right and they're wrong. But yeah. I want both children to walk out with some feeling of, of happiness, of, of appreciating something was that they were also understood. Now, at the end of the day, we have to do this because that's what the law is. That's the rule is. But there has to be a certain sense of that they felt that they were understood and appreciated it's as well. different how you do it so somebody feels understood and appreciated. But what a psaq is, is about what's, what's MS. Okay, so, and again, general is hard. Okay. Of course, if there's a clear psaq, you know, if one person says, I want to, uh, if a person comes to Rav about a question of Shabbos, there's the, there's the no, halacha. Let's say in a business situation. So there's going to be, if it's a clear psaq, that this is definitely right and this is definitely wrong, the Rav should say that. I mean, we're not, we're not afraid of saying what the halacha is. And yet, we're trying to work with people also. So, is it, is sometimes pshara on the cheshbon of emes? Maybe. Sometimes compromise is not the truest truth. Yeah. That's true. And sometimes it's more important to compromise than have the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth sometimes could be very damaging. 
Whereas when we're compromising and both people walk out feeling... Um, if both people walk If they do. If not, then we didn't gain anything. And that's correct. You know, if you, if you force someone to come to a compromise and it's not true, you may have lost more than you gained. That's true as well. That's true as well. But the, the idea of Tiferes is to try to bring some type of coming together between two sides that don't see eye to eye whatsoever. Now, interestingly, going back to creation... What happens? Right? On the first day of creation, Hashem creates uh, well, light and dark, right? What happens the second day of creation? I'm going back to the class of a couple of weeks ago. Hashem separates the waters. Separation. We talked then about the waters going up being the spiritual, the holy, and the waters down here being the physical, the mundane, right? And if you remember, we said then that the second day was gvura, severity, separation. And that's why in the second day of creation, it does not say in the Torah the word tov. Every day it says, Vayaro Lakim Kitov. God said it was good aside from the second day. Why? Because severity is important, because Hashem did it. Sometimes we have to be severe, but it's not good. Meaning, it's not the final step. It's not what we're looking for to remain separated. Sometimes we have to separate in order to ultimately bring it back together in a greater way and in a better way. Um, we talked about it then. I don't want to go through all the ideas. We, we spoke. Sometimes you have to designate and divide in order to be able to have something cohesive. Right? You have to... Um, I'll give a bad example, but if you have like a game that's mixed up, like a lot of different pieces and everything mixed up, um, if, you have, if you have little children, you know a lot about that. So everything is mixed up, right? So what do you, you have to divide. No, the, the red pieces go here and the blue pieces go here and the yellow pieces go here and the black pieces go here, right? You have to, that's severity in a sense, division. We don't want everything together. But why are we putting everything apart? In order to be able to play all together, right? So we're doing severity, we're putting everything in its place in order afterward to bring them together. So severity is in order to bring us back together. But in order to be together, first you have to define what everyone is and what everything is. So, so what happens? On the second day, Hashem separates the lower waters from the upper waters. But those lower waters are just a big flood. What happens on the third day? That down here, Hashem separates the water from the ground, making this a world where people can live. Now there's the people on the ground and there's the water and they can, the water waters the ground and the people on the ground can tend to the waters. Suddenly, what before was just a flood situation and a separation situation now becomes a situation where the world, where again, vegetation starts growing on the dry ground, watered by the water, water and ground are fusing. That's the Tiferes. The Tiferes of after things are separated, then it's going to rain from above and it's going to make the, the ground grow and everything comes together in a beautiful way, that's the key toiv on the third day um, that complements or finishes what really began on the second day. So the second day was just the severity part of it, and therefore there wasn't goodness revealed. On the third day, that goodness is revealed, and dry ground is made, and now there's water, and there's fusion, and there's a union, and there's complementing the dry ground and the water. Each one needs the other. Um, and that's why we talk about judgment, which really... Again, first, on a basic level, is the making the world a habitable place. On a deeper level, is the ability to deal with opposites and bring them together. That's, in short, an idea about the third day, the Yom Shlishi, which is a very special and very powerful day um, of the week. It's called the day Yom Shlishi Shahuchpal Bay Kitoiv, that Hashem said Kitoiv twice in creation. Just like on the second day, he didn't say Toiv at all. On the third day, he said it twice when he separated the water from the ground and then when he had, <coughs> excuse me, the vegetation grow. Okay. Silverberg, I always wondered, I don't know if there's an answer for this, but I always felt like it would have made more sense you put the moon in the sky where that you just separated, and you put the sun there that has to do with night and day, and then you start filling up the world, ready, getting it ready for the people. I don't, it was like I, it never so made interesting. It never made sense. Like yeah, as a kid, I always 
And I always would confuse it. And I said, no, Lakey, the third day's grass. Remember, it didn't make sense to me. That's I don't know, like, you know, why Hashem did each one each day. Could you understand my logic? <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not authorized to explain why Hashem did everything. <laughs> I can't really comment on that. However, just a thought. Okay. Just a thought. And that is, when Hashem separated the water from the ground, so there's this separation, immediately he showed how the water and ground complement each other, and the water makes the ground grow. So that separation came along with, so to speak, the explanation that this separation is not so that they should be separate, but that they should complement each other and create a beautiful world. So when you... As long as you have water, nothing can grow. Everything is covered with water. So now there's ground. Ground alone can't grow, you need water. But when there's ground and water side by side, suddenly everything can grow. So as Hashem is separating the ground from the water, the immediate consequence is that now the water water nourishes the ground and the ground grows trees. So it all goes along with the Kitaev concept that the separation here is entirely for the complementing of each other. Right, the fusion. The fusion, the fusion. So the separation is like really for a wholeness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Just like borders between people. Borders between people that makes difference is what allows them to connect. Mm -hmm. When there's no borders, there's no connecting. There's just, everyone's all over everyone else. But when there is borders, so then that allows for a very beautiful wholesomeness and connection. And that's, it's, it's a law in so many different ways. Right? I use, I'm sorry? Fences make good neighbors. Right. And that's so true. That's so true. That's so true. When everyone, is, when everyone is defined and unique and has their place, then they can, in a healthy and happy and wholesome way, connect and become whole. And that's, again, it's in every type of relationship and everything. As simple as in those games. That when you when you divide all the places in the right places, then you can play a normal game together. As long as it's a jumble, there's no game. That was the main point in in last reading's book. Um, what is it called? Does anyone blush? Does Why doesn't anyone blush anymore? Right? And the whole I, I I don't remember the book, but I remember that one piece where it says how husband and wife have to have borders. You, you don't have to know everything that your spouse is thinking or doing or has done or will do. There have to be borders between husband and wife in order to be peace. If I'm not mistaken, the original name of that book was Borders. Oh, really? It, just, it just doesn't borders. sell as many copies as Why right. Doesn't Anyone Blush yeah. Anymore? Right. <laughs> as, so, as far as the name the goes. The main point is between mm. husband and wife having borders. Yeah. I would also say that, you know, so many non-firm people say, um, you know, you live, your life is so controlled. Like about from, from, people. About from mm -hmm. people, you know, it's so controlled. What do you mean you can't carry on Shabbos and you can't do this and, and you can't mix milk and meat and you know all the things? But it's and it's like I try to explain that about when you have the boundaries, then you 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 could fulfill your life even greater. It's if you have if there's no boundaries, it's like you're so um, lost. I mm -hmm. feel like. You don't have to use an example of from non-from people. There's a person who has all types of addictions, the smoking and to this and to that and whatever. Well, because I, I don't, no boundaries, no boundaries, no borders. I do whatever I want. When you do whatever you want and you're loose, then you don't live a life. I mean, you're not healthy and you don't, you're not successful. And you're not to be successful. I have to wake up at a certain point in time. I have to go to sleep at a certain point in time because otherwise I won't wake up at that time. I won't be successful. Right? This has nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. This has to do with life. If I create borders for myself, then I flourish and I'm successful. So on the one hand, oh, I have to go to sleep. Uh, isn't that boring that every night I have to go to sleep? But because of that, I can wake up. And because of that, I can go out and be successful and live a happy life. So the borders become the greatest gift for me living a happy and successful life. And that's, again, that's without religion. That's just it's basic life. With borders, one succeeds. One is able to accomplish what they want. Person goes to, uh, you know, student goes to college and just parties for two, three years. The other one works. So one had borders, one didn't. One walks out successful and one walks out with nothing. So who, you know, who, who was more limited? The one who created their own borders, the one who didn't have borders. The one who didn't have borders is limited for their entire life. Okay. 
Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wednesday. It's an interesting day. Um, the pri- Wednesday is a longer uh, chapter of Tehillim. It is chapter um, 94. And it talks about um, excuse me, Hashem being a God of Nekama, of uh, venge- vengeance or mm-hmm. against the enemies of Klal Yisrael. And he talks about those who hurt us and the wicked who, who feel that there's no judge and there's no one watching and they kill the poor and Almana Vegir, a, a widow and a, and a convert they kill and, and, and orphans, and other lawless people. The Yomru, they say, Lo Yiraka, Hashem doesn't see, Velo Yavin, Eloke Yaakov, Hashem doesn't understand, and so on and so forth. And Davin Melech talks about that Hashem does exact punishment from those. What does this have to do with Wednesday? Why is Wednesday the day that we focus in on that chapter of Tehillim that talks about those who are lawless and godless, so to speak? They say there's no God. You know, God's not watching, He's not going to see, and therefore they're wicked and they're hurtful and so far, so, so on and so forth. What does that have to do with Wednesday? So interestingly, what happens on Wednesday? As we just discussed, Hashem creates the sun and the moon. Now, the sun and the moon are, on the one hand, the most wonderful gifts that Hashem gave us. Because they give light and they give warmth and they give sustenance and they help things grow and everything. I mean, we have the sun and the moon. On the other hand, the sun and the moon have always represented a problem. And what's the problem? Idolatry. All of the early idolatry, idolaters, what did it begin with? They looked up in the sun and the moon and the stars and the constellations and they said, oh, God doesn't control the world. Look at that powerful sun. The sun gives us light. The sun gives us warmth. The moon gives us whatever it gives us. The stars, the constellations, the fortune, my fortune, my month, my your month, you know, the, the, the different uh, signs of the heaven. And all early idolatry was all about that. Um, in fact, halachically, uh, there's so much about statues of the sun and the moon and the stars. That was all the early idolatries. Later it became statues of statues of statues and forms of forms. But it started with looking up at the great um, entities, the great bodies that Hashem created, that one might think they're the source of everything that they're giving us. And that's somewhat logical. After all, the sun is giving us light and warmth. So if I'm a religious person, if I'm a spiritual-minded person, and I recognize that whoever gives me what I need, so I should pray to them or be on their good side, so the sun, I look up, the sun's giving me warmth, it's giving me light. So that became um, a symbol of idolatry and of seeing Hashem's agents as entities unto themselves. Now, obviously, this started just a couple of generations into the world. Adam and Chava knew Hashem face to face. So the question is, where did I, who started idolatry? Who thought of the idea? So the, 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 the Gemara talks about it. The Ramam talks about it. That the first one was Enosh. Enosh, which is the third generation, fourth generation from Adam. And he came up with this idea. He says, yeah, of course, God created the world. But he, he created ministers and put them in charge. After all, God has better things to do with this time. But in other words, when they originally uh, thought this idea, they came, then came up with the concept that God is very removed, very high, very holy. He has bigger things to tend to than to, to make sure that it rains, or to make sure that our grass grows, or that it's light. So that's why he created a sun. He created a moon. And he said, take care of it. So therefore, if they're taking care of it, just like if you have, I don't know, if you have a governor, so there might be someone on top of him, but the governor's in charge in this country or in this state or whatever it is. So we'll, we'll, you know, we have to be on his good side. So they started praying to the sun and praying to the moon and then bringing sacrifices and so on and so forth. It does make sense. There is a certain rationale to that. And yet the Torah says that that's not the way it is. The Torah says that the sun and the moon and everything Hashem gives us is like an axe in the, in the hand of the woodshop. So if you see a woodshopper chopping down trees with an axe, well, someone will say, oh, the axe is in charge of ta- chopping down the trees. So let's pray to the axe. Or imagine someone comes to the woodshopper and says, or someone sees these, these, the wood is chopped and says, wow, that was such a powerful axe. It wasn't an axe. The axe was only a vehicle with which the wood chopper chopped. Right, someone once, uh, there's a photographer that t- took beautiful pictures. So, um, so there's a woman who sees pictures and she says, she says, wow, 
you, you must have a very good camera. Right? Such beautiful pictures. So the photographer came to the kitchen and this woman cooked some wonderful foods. He says, you must have very good pots. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that that food was the one. <laughs> that food that food was delicious. Where'd you get your oven at, right? right? What do you mean? I made the food, right? So what 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 you're doing is you're you're totally mis um, misunderstanding or, or explaining what's going on here. When you're complimenting the woman for her oven, it's an insult. Why is it an insult? Because isn't, isn't the oven the oven is an oven? The oven is a dead piece of metal that gets hot. I thought of what to make and how to make and put it together for the right time, for the right moments, whatever, whatever. Right? Just for example, just by example, it's I don't know if the, with the I don't. <laughs> with the are you a photographer? No, because you're a cook, not a photographer. But it's different with the camera. A camera makes a difference. I mean, a photographer also makes a difference, but a camera makes a difference. Wait, a pot and a, a pot makes a difference. difference. Whether it's yeah. it's still what you do with it. Right. Right. Okay. Listen, I could be I could be convinced because I'm neither a cook nor a photographer. <laughs> I mean, I, ha I have to say, I, I, you know, th this is <laughs> this is this is being recorded. I should be a little more careful. But just tonight, my wife asked me to put something up on the oven for her because she was out and whatever, which I I did. And about an hour later, when she asked me where it is, I said it's still there. And she was very upset with me. Well, it wasn't very edible by the time she had come home. She didn't tell me to take it off. Though. I was going to put it on the oven. But I, we're not going to get into this. But this, I'm not, I'm really not a cook. Um, the point... It was a pot, it wasn't you. 100%, I did a wonderful job. It's not my fault, I kept on working. Anyhow, the point is, the point is that that was the toast, that was the mistake of Enosh, which was the mistake of idolatry. That they started attributing significance to the tools that Hashem uses. Hashem gives us light through the sun. Hashem gives us warmth. Hashem gives us nourishment through the rain. So you don't thank the raindrops. It's like, again, it's like thanking, the, it's, it's telling the, the, the lady that, that you know, the, this pot is wonderful. Really, your pot's are delicious, thank you. So, so really, that's what it is. So this chapter of Tehillim, which was on Wednesday, is about the people who say there's no God. We can do what we want. Because it all started with looking at God's great creations as separate entities. So this was the day of the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. These are the greatest of creations. Greatest in sense of in size, in, in, in magnificence. The whole world sees them. The whole world benefits from them in a constant, in a constant way. And, actu and actually, they were the early idols. And therefore, on this day, we talk about those people who say, lo, lo Yirakov, lo Yovan, lo Yaakov. There might be a God, but he doesn't see. He's on vacation. You know, he put, he put um, you know, entities in charge. But didn't Hashem, like, set it up that way? Because if we could see, then nobody would ever thought that. And in other words, he's so hidden. That's true. That and, that, and that's true. That's true that Hashem created a world that does... Mis that does give the ability right. to be misled, and that's that's definitely true. The actual word for the word, the Hebrew word for world, is olam, which is also the word he'elam, which means to be hidden. And Hashem concealed Himself in creation, and He says, "Let's play some hide and seek. You know, go find me." Now, why did He do that? That's a whole different question. But the the rule of this world is natural, is nature, and we don't see Hashem and everything, and miracles are. Few and far, few and far between, right? So that's how Hashem created the world. But Hashem, it was different though in the first place, and they just was existing. It said like at that time they were able to see like if they did something good, they saw the reward, and if they did something bad, they were punished immediately. Like wasn't there more obvious then? The answer is yes. So and at the same, and one second, one second, obvious. and at the same time, the time of the first place of Mikdash was a time where idolatry was rampant. Way more than now. This is hard for us to get our minds around. Yeah. It is, and I don't have the answer, but it's a fact. It, you know, the, the Navi, the Navim are full yeah. of stories of idolatry. Now, who does idolatry? Got to be crazy. I mean, maybe in India, but I'm saying, who, I mean, regular people who, who, who serves idols, who bows to idols. Um, but don't, isn't there like different ways that, you know, people say there's different kinds of Avodazara? Avodazara now is. Um, um, cell phones, 
or like, <laughs> yeah, we're addictions, or like yeah, always we're wanting addictions. to have a yeah. lot of money. But it's not. It's different. Yeah. Conceptually, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you don't it's normally so walk outside and see people bowing down to yeah. money. I mean, yeah. they're, they're doing that figuratively. Right. Right. But not. They don't look at it as their God. It's not right. that way. It's an addiction to something. That's yeah. true. That's true. I had a, <laughs> I had a student in Mechon Alta in the summer who told me the following story. She says that she comes home and she says, Balas Shuva. And in her house, the mother came back from, I think, India and bought this big statue of a Buddha or something. And the girl says, I don't think this is going to work. I, I think that this, this, this doesn't sound right halakhically. So she wrote to the rabbi, you know, asked the rabbi Chabad.org, and what do you got to do? This is Buddha. You know, and he says that really it has to be destroyed as it's been served as an idol. So the girl read it, and she's telling me the story that he, the rabbi writes, it has to be destroyed as it was at, as it's served as an idol. So she thought it means that you have to destroy it while you're serving it as an idol. Oh dear! Because that's because it has to be destroyed as it's served as an idol. And so she's telling her mother, we have to somehow bow to this and destroy it while we're bowing. <laughs> And the mother says, that doesn't sound right. Why would you have to bow to it? He says, well, that's what the rabbi said. He said you have to destroy it as it served as an idol. So, yeah. And so they got into a whole machlekes, a whole debate and shot and what the rabbi meant. And they, they wrote to the, to the rabbi in Chabad.org, you know, do you really have to serve it while you're destroying it? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is just, you know, you can never be too careful with the words that you use. You never know what a person, this is a real story of someone who I know. Um, okay, be that as it may, I want to finish with one interesting pasuk, I don't know, finish with, but, but finish this as far as Wednesday is concerned, with one interesting pasuk, um, where we say, here, it's about five lines into the paragraph, on the end of the line, Hanote ozen halo yishma, the one who created or literally planted an ear, doesn't, don't, doesn't he hear? In Yotzer Ayin, the one who formed an eye, Haloyabit, doesn't he see? This is, so to speak, our response to the fellows who say God doesn't see, doesn't hear. And but there's a very interesting um, back and forth here. When they're saying God doesn't say, doesn't hear, what are they really who's, saying? Who's saying that? There is the wicked versus the Tehillim, David Hamalach. Oh. So the wicked are saying. Um, you know, lo God doesn't see, lo yavin, he doesn't understand. So the wicked are saying, you know, do what you want because no one's watching anyway. And David Hamalach is answering to him, saying, no, of course God is watching. The one who created the eye, don't you understand that he can see? The one who created the, the ear, don't you understand that he can hear? That's what he's saying. So what's the deeper element of this debate? So the deeper element is the following. They're saying, like I said before, God is too aloof, too high for this. God doesn't care what's going on in my house. You know, he created a world. And then he left the sun and moon in charge. He's, he's, he's busy. He's learning Hasidus or something. I don't know. He's, he's not watching in my house to see what I'm doing. He's too spiritual to be so nitty, no, so petty as to be dealing with what's going on here. And we say, no, the one who created the eye. And here's something very interesting, an idea in Hasidus that says, the eye, what does an eye see? Something physical. But what happens with it? It takes that physical thing and brings it, it makes a mental picture of it. Suddenly it's in my head, spiritual. You following? When we see something, we now can picture it in our head. So that which was physical becomes spiritual in my head, and I remember it even when that's not there. The same thing goes with hearing. Oh, wait, spiritual or visual? Spiritual in a sense that after I saw something, yeah. Now I'm in a different room, and that thing is in my mind. Right. Which means that thing that I saw as a physical entity, I snapped a snapshot with it. Right. The eye is the best camera. Right. And I put that in my head, and now I have a, image. an image. But that means now I have an image of that physical object. Right. What till now was only something physical over there, I'm carrying around with me in my head now. Right. Okay? Why is that spiritual? Spiritual because there's no Not table in my head. There's, there's no physical table in my head. There's a picture of a table in my head. Right. So that physical table now became, was trans, was, uh, that's what I'm looking for, transformed, so to speak, into an image 
Correct. That's a spiritual image. Spiritual in the sense of not physical. Meaning a spirit. Spirit, right. Spirit. Not, when I say spiritual, I don't mean holy. I don't mean spirituality as Kedusha. Oh, yeah. No, I mean spirit as, as opposed to, to, to matter. A non-tangible. Oh, okay. Something that was a tangible, that was okay. Gashmi, that was physical that you could tap, okay. it became an intangible. Okay. So in other words, in other words, there's this uncanny thing going on that it happened, we all know it from the day we're born, so it's not even in our minds something right. special. But really what happens every time we see something, if you think about it, it's amazing. It's one of those things, you know, the, the human body and the gifts that we have that we take so for granted are the greatest inventions that can ever be made. So here Hashem created that here there's physical things there. I walked by and I saw it. Boom, it's in my head. So right now, whenever I want, I see that table. But the table's not here. The table's gone. But it's not gone. It's in my head. I snapped a picture and it's right there. So the eye has that uncanny ability of transforming something of matter into a picture that is not of matter that's in my head it could be in my head forever mm-hmm. we know things that people remember things that even if you don't remember it consciously 20 years later 30 50 years later suddenly you see something that happened who knows what mm-hmm. right um and the same things with, with things we hear hearing is a sound wave right that's what it is there's, when someone says something or whatever, there's a sound wave and my ear picks up. But once it picks up, I know that it, it right away transforms that into my brain and now I know something that I heard 10 years ago and it's there. So that even the physical eye and ear that we have has this great ability that's really a miracle of Hashem to take something very physical and immediately, without any effort, turn it into something refined and spiritual that's in my mind. And that's what we're saying. You people, you, the godless people are saying, ah, he doesn't see, he doesn't hear. He's too spiritual to see the physical. He doesn't know what's going on down here. He's too holy and aloof. And we answer, we say, let's think about our own eyes. Our eyes and our mind is spiritual and they take in the physical and make spiritual pictures out of it. The one who created that concept of the eye, the inventor of the eye. Don't you think he can do the same? Don't you think that although there's physical and mundane, he's able to bring everything right into his own self, although he's spiritual and aloof and holy and so on and so forth, and yet he has, just like in our little bodies, we have that ability to transform the physical into the spiritual, the spirit, in the same way that works by Hashem. And that's the, what David Amalek is answering to those who say he's removed, he's above, he's too spiritual for the physical. Say, our eyes aren't too spiritual for the physical and they bring it into ourselves. Hashem who created that, who mastered that. For him, clearly, there's no difference between the spiritual and the physical and they, they can both, um, they can perfectly choose. Um, interestingly, one of the gifts, one of the many gifts of modern science is that so many ideas about Hashem seeing and knowing become so much more practical and understandable for us. Um, I, I have a grandfather, should live and be well, Zayder Rabashkin, who's an older man, obviously, and he's my wife's grandfather. So he told me a few times that he was a child in Russia. In, we're talking about we're talking about the uh, 1920s, right? 1920s. And he was in a city called Neville. Anyone ever heard of Neville? Neville is an old Russian city. Uh, when I say old in the sense, it was a Chabad city, but a lot of Chabad. There's a lot of Goyim and whatever. And this was communist Russia, and communists were working to against religion, against God. He says, he'll never forget. He says he was walking from Yeshiva with his brother. And he, were, he was eight years old or seven years old. And they were walking with their little caps, no, little boys, nine, 80 years ago, 82 years ago, whatever it is. And he says they were, they were surrounded by a group of big Russian kids. Um, I don't know if they're Jewish or not Jewish, but communists. And they were taunting them. The kids were not, and what were they taunting them? He says, he goes, my grandfather says the story, he says with all the details. He says they were taunting them, he says they were saying, what is this, it says in, in Pirkei Avos that, that Hashem sees and records everything. Everything that you do, he sees and he records. He said, like, how does that make any sense? Where does he have enough file cabinets to... Is this what these boys were saying? Yes. 
The, these boys were the com, they were indoctrinated by the communists. This was the communist thing to prove that the whole godliness is ridiculous. So these were big boys, 15-year-old, 16-year-old boys, surrounding these little Hasidic kids who are 8, 9, 10 years old. And telling them, God records everything. Where? Where is their ca- file cabinet for this? And where is their paper to write down all this? Where is their ink? And they kept on going at it. Like the, the, it doesn't make any sense. He sees and he records and he remembers. Where? How? Now, these kids... They didn't have answers to these questions, except that that's what we believe. That's what it says in the Torah. So my grandfather always points out, 80 years later, these questions are silly. Like any telephone, any cell phone, any computer documents millions of pieces of information in a second and doesn't require any space whatsoever. And today, the little phone is a computer. So he says, then they, didn't, they couldn't answer that. Because then, logically, those kids were right. In, in those days, how do you record so much information? It didn't make any sense, except that we have Amuna, and we never wavered in our Amuna. But today, <laughs> that's, that, there's a silly question. What, what do you, who, needs to, who needs file cabinets? What is file cabinets? It's like a historical event from a museum or something. It's like a typewriter. Like, you know, my father told me that when he was young, he saw a typewriter, kids say, you know. <laughs> I, was by, I was by a, a zoo somewhere, and we were going, you know, fun exhibit, obviously, right? So we're going fun exhibit, and we see a group of kids crowded around something. We thought, well, there must be some like interesting animal. You know what they found? A payphone. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that was amazing. It was the most incredible thing in the zoo, right? Because who ever heard of such a thing? I mean, what? You, you, there's like a slot you could put money in. It's like ridiculous, right? Things change, but but these when we when we say these words when we say these words in davening. Hashem created the ear. He knows how to hear. He hears everything. He created the eye. Yes, he sees. Anyways, so all of that is on the fourth day, the day that Hashem created that sun and the moon, which again led into idolatry and all these different ideas that Hashem moved himself and he created these things and they take care of us. That's when we have this this, um, section that's really about emuna and about not thinking that and not making that mistake of you know, telling Hashem that his oven does a wonderful job in running the world, right? Not to make that mistake. Okay, do you want to do Yom Hamishi? Do you want to stop? It's, uh, I don't know, two minutes to nine. Let's do it. Yes. Do it? Okay, so we'll do, we'll, you know what? We'll start, we'll start. Okay. We'll start Yom Hamishi, which is Thursday. I have 9.15 a meeting. It was across the street. So I have very, very quick. Um, Thursday. Thursday's psalm is about singing. It's about singing to Hashem. It is Psalm 81 of Tehillim, Pei Aleph. And it starts right off. Harninu lelokim uzeinu. Let's sing to Hashem, who's our strength. Hariu lelokim. Let's uh, blow trumpets to Hashem. Seuzimra, song. Usnu sof. Sof is a type of a musical instrument. Kinar is a... Or a fiddle or whatever. It's all about singing, singing to Hashem, singing the praises of Hashem. What's unique about Thursday and song? So I'll just I'll just speak about one quick idea, and that is what was created Thursday? Fish and birds. Fish and birds are Kabbalistically and even halachically the most refined of the animals. In other words, there's the animals, the regular animals on dry land, which is all the animals, the cats and the dogs and the bears and the lions and tigers and whatever. And then there's fish and there is birds. Now, both fish and birds, especially Kabbalistically, are more spiritually connected, are more edel, more refined than animals. And there's a number of points about that. Let's, let's mention one or two. Well, they said the birds sing. I'm sorry? The birds sing. And, and that's exactly, the birds, when you think about song and animals, you think about birds. They're always chirping, they're always singing. Now, we don't necessarily understand what they're saying, but definitely it's brought, under, on a soul level, they're singing the praises of Hashem. Birds of all animals and of all creations fly, fly upward. Everything physical is an expression of something spiritual. Our neshama always tries to soar upward. 
That's why certain neshamas are called like neshamas of birds, especially of great tzaddikim, that their neshama can like soar heavenly, heavenward. There's so many stories about the Balshemta over there, Arizal, or you know, different tzaddikim in the Gemara, that sometimes their neshama would soar heavenly, heavenward and see things. And so birds, birds are not tzaddikim, but the fact that physically, differently than anything in this world, birds have the ability to soar upward, tells us something about a spiritual nature that they have, that they're soaring to the spiritual. They're not as mundane, as grounded or ground... Animals. Yeah, like animals. They're, they're, not, anim, they're not that animalistic. They're more graceful. They're soaring. They're chirping. They're singing. That's birds. Fish are always covered in the water. Kabbalistically, always, the water represents the hidden levels, the spiritual levels. Moshe Rabbeinu is drawn from the water. His name is Moshe, which means to be drawn from the water, which is all about that he was from a very high spiritual level and drawn into this physical world, a world of physicality. So, and that's why it says the fish don't suffer from Ayin Hara, because they're covered by the water. They're always enveloped in their source. So the birds and the fish represent the more spiritual of animals, which is also why when it comes to shechita, a, a fish doesn't need shechita. You don't have to shech the fish. Why is that? Because shechita is in order to elevate it, to bring it to a higher a, a state. A fish is already at that state. So a fish, you take it out of the water and, and, and it dies. But there's no concept of shechita and a bracha and all of that because it doesn't have to be made more spiritual than it is. Um, birds also have much lesser laws of shechita than animals. I'm not going to go into details, but an animal's shechita is much more intense and much, just on a physical level, to shech an animal is a lot greater of a deal because a bird is also seen as a more spiritual animal. So therefore, it's the more spiritual types of creations like the fish and the birds that help us also sing with Hashem. In a sense, we're singing along with them. Um, in, we, I think, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned in the past, by Kriya Siamsuf, when we pass through the sea, it says that trees grew forth and the, bird, the children gave food to the birds who sang the shira together with the Jewish people. Again, it was the birds who sang the shira because of their spiritual nature, their soaring nature, that they also sing the shira to Hashem and help us come to that shira as well, which is why that day is a day that we focus in on song to Hashem on Thursday.